In the late 90s, there was an ecumenical document released entitled Evangelicals and Catholics Together, ECT. After its release, there were some major concerns among Christian leaders. The controversy that ensued led to a summit meeting in Florida. John MacArthur, who was there, recalled what happened, especially the leadership of the late R.C. Sproul. Quote, R.C. pointed out that the document's discussion of justification by faith omitted the all-important word alone, the sola in the sola fide. This was and always has been the central point of disagreement between Roman Catholics and Protestants, he said. By deliberately omitting that word and acting as if it were a non-issue, Protestants who helped draft the ECT document were deliberately capitulating to the main Roman Catholic error and undermining the gospel itself. At one point, he became so passionate in making his argument that he literally climbed on the table, making the plea on his hands and knees from the tabletop until each person on the other side of the table had made direct eye contact with him. There wasn't a hint of malice in the gesture, and everyone in the room understood that. The passion that motivated R.C. was his love of the gospel and his zeal for making sure that the message is proclaimed without compromise or confusion. End quote. When there's a compromise or confusion of the gospel, it's not going too far to overturn tables as our Lord did or climb on one as R.C. Sproul did. Paul may not have flipped tables at Antioch, but I bet he was passionate and zealous. Once the Christian table of Jews and Gentiles together turned into a segregation, once the gospel was obscured by the actions of his main preachers, it was time for Paul to speak up. Before we read Galatians 2, 11 to 21, here's a quick review of the letter thus far. Today we're concluding the first of three major sections of Galatians. Paul devoted much of chapter 1 and 2 to defending his gospel and his apostleship to the Gentiles. The Judaizers, who are troubling the Galatians, trying to turn Gentiles into Jews, are denigrating Apostle Paul. They say he's inferior to the other apostles. They claim the message he preaches leaves out the essential matters of the law of Moses, like circumcision. Paul counters and tells his side of the story. He tells the true account of his conversion, a testimony of God's grace. Before that Damascus Road experience encounter, he was not looking to become an apostle, let alone a Christian. He was on his way to destroy the saints when Christ appeared to him and directly commissioned them to the nations. In the early years of his ministry, Paul stayed separate from the Jerusalem apostles, except for a brief interaction with Peter. He mostly worked independently according to the unique purposes God designed for him. That's chapter 1. On to chapter 2. 
It was not until more than a decade later that he actually presented his ministry to his peers at Jerusalem. At this meeting, the leaders or the pillars of the first church welcomed Titus, a Greek, an uncircumcised brother in Christ. They added no burden of law on Titus, and they added nothing to Paul's gospel. Instead, they recognized the unity and diversity they shared in Jesus. The Paul's been gradually making a strong case for his validity. And it turns out that he saves his best argument for the last. Oh, let's say there's an occasion when Paul's the one refuting Peter. The apostle to the Gentiles actually correcting the apostle to the Jews. Then we have a very strong case for Paul's independent and God-given authority. And it turns out, there really is such an incident. And with that, against those accusations leveled at Paul, we have what we call a smoking gun, or coup de gras. So let's read Galatians 2, 11 to 21, and see what it is. Galatians 2, 11 to 21. If you're using your pew Bible, you'll find it in page 811. Galatians 2. 11 to 21. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I I, through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for it is right, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. I observe two parts in this passage. From verses 11 to 16, Paul narrates his confrontation of Peter and explains why that had to happen. But then from verse 17 onward, he addresses a possible objection to the gospel. At both points, the apostles defending his message of truth. And as they say, the proof is in the pudding. In other words, the value of the gospel is seen in its results. And today's passage boils down to two blessings, two wonderful blessings we enjoy in Jesus. 
unity of Christians and union with Christ. I'll present the two truths in sentence form up front. One, the gospel achieves the unity of Christians while the law divides. The gospel achieves the unity of Christians while the law divides. That's verses 11 to 16. Two, the gospel leads us to separate from the law for union with Christ. Two, the gospel leads us to separate from the law for union with Christ. That's verses 17 to 21. First, the gospel achieves the the unity of Christians while the law divides. We begin by catching up with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. The story told in verses 11 to 16 most likely happened not too long after the events of verses 1 to 10, which relates to Acts 11, 27 to 30. After delivering their famine relief fund, Paul and Barnabas stuck around in Jerusalem for a bit. Their presence among the saints must have been helpful. They lost the martyrdom, James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Next, Herod Agrippa targeted Peter as well until the Lord sent an angel to spring him out of jail. He showed up as a miraculous answer prayer to the church prayer meeting, and then he escaped the city. And then we don't hear from Peter for a while, not until Acts 15. From today's passage, we do learn that Peter made a return visit to see Paul and Barnabas in Syrian Antioch. Peter must have stayed for a bit, enjoying the fellowship there. He ate with both Jews and Gentiles alike. This wasn't a totally new experience, as he has already dined with Cornelius at his home. At Acts 11, 10 and 11. But then something changed in Peter. As we see in verse 12, it says, certain men came from James. We have very little information on who these men were, but here's my guess. I don't think these were divisive and disruptive men. I tend to agree with F.F. Bruce, that James sent messengers, they most likely brought Peter a report and update of what's going on back in Jerusalem. The message might have read like this, Hey Peter, just FYI, Jews here have heard of your close contact with Gentiles. They're questioning your loyalty to Israel. They think you don't care about the law. Perhaps there's a way to fix your image once you get back here. Sincerely, your brother in Christ, James. Now, over time, Peter earned the respect of the Jews in Judea, but now that was changing with his increasingly public openness to the Gentiles. His reputation is taking a hit. Maybe there were even death threats. Now, Paul may be used to having haters. Peter, not so much. He hears that message and overreacts. The man who spoke boldly before the Jerusalem authorities cowered under the pressure of popular opinion, fearing those who were of the circumcision. The fear of man brings a snare. Driven by that fear, 
Peter went back to his old ways and familiar habits. He withdrew and separated himself from the Gentiles, eating only with fellow Jews. He did this in a church setting. But Peter committed that sin of favoritism mentioned in James 2.1. He held the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. This directly contradicts Romans 15, 7 to 9, where it says, Receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Peter did not merely harm himself through this. He harmed others. Note how Paul targets Peter because he's the leader. Look at verse 14. If you, that singular, being a Jew, live in, a, in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Yes, compel as in force or coerce. By the force of his influence and actions, Peter led both Jews and Gentiles astray. He led them down the path of legalism, back to the law of separation. The 17th century commentator John Trapp once remarked, quote, the sinners, the, I'm sorry, the sins of teachers are the teachers of sins. The sins of teachers are the teachers of sins. This is a scary and humbling thought for me. It should scare all of us in authority, not just pastors or church leaders, but managers, husbands, fathers. If I treat a brother or sister in Christ as a second-class citizen, I'll be leading others to sin. Sure, I'm not teaching with words, but I'll be teaching with my actions. But it's not just about individual mistake or social dynamics. The integrity of the gospel is at stake. The Jews at Antioch were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Look again at that phrase, the truth of the gospel. Where did we see that before? Clue, you don't have to go far. We saw it last week. Stay in Galatians 2 and just go back up to verse 5. Flashback, when the Jews in Jerusalem welcomed Titus the Greek, they resisted bondage and they promoted the truth of the gospel. Now the office is happening. When the Jews at Antioch alienated the Gentile saints, they yielded to bondage and they muddled the truth of the gospel. Watch how you treat brothers and sisters in Christ who are different than you. The truth of the gospel is at stake. The gospel achieves the unity of Christians while the law divides. Paul expands on this truth of the gospel in verses 15 to 16 to help us understand this argument. It might help us to locate verse 15 and put single or double quotation marks around the phrase sinners 
of the Gentiles. Those marks will help us to see the world through the eyes of an Israelite in Paul's day. That's because law-abiding religious Jews back then were accustomed to labeling the heathens, those without the law, as sinners of the Gentiles. But in verse 16, we see how the gospel removes the separation of Jews and Gentiles. I observe here three key concepts emphasized three times. I call it the three times three emphasis. Three times, there's the verb justified. The word is a legal term. Being declared innocent, not guilty in God's judgment court. So how is one justified before the perfect holy God? Well, three times Paul says, not by the works of the law. Remember, the Israelites saw themselves better than the sinners of the Gentiles, but having the law of Moses does not mean that they were better than the heathen, those without the law. It turns out Jews themselves are without excuse. Those who judge practice the same things as hypocrites. As God works in the hearts of Jews like Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, they realize that they're sinners like the rest. To support his claim, Paul cites from Psalm 143, verse 2, which says, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living, no flesh, is righteous. Paul says later in Romans 3, 9 to 12, Jew and, Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The whole world is united in identification as sinners. But there is a better identity in Christ. Three times Paul gives the alternative, the true way of salvation. Once he says we have believed in Christ Jesus and twice by faith in Christ. But it's all the same idea. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus. There's one and the same requirement for heaven for all who live on earth. We must go from the unity of sin to the unity of faith. The gospel achieves the unity of Christians while the law divides. Do you know the gospel? This emphasis Paul makes about justification, about works of the law, and about faith in Jesus is important not only for Galatians. These concepts are essential to salvation. That's why we have to emphasize it here today. What are, what are your thoughts on your identity as sinner? Do you agree with God's verdict on your life that you cannot exalt yourself over others? Do you agree with scriptures that you deserve everlasting wrath? It's true. We've sinned in thought, word, and deed. We feared man more than God. We've coveted, we've lied, we've been hypocrites, committed sexual immorality. Please understand that we cannot make up for our mistakes with the works of the law. We cannot be justified before God's sight that way. 
with the court date of eternity set, we have nowhere to turn except to faith in Christ. There's our only way. We can place our hope of heaven in him. That's because he's God and man at the same time. He lived a perfect life, and he offered up that perfect life on the cross, dying for our sins in our place and as our substitute. He paid the full penalty of our guilt and rose from the grave on the third day. He ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind. We need to make sure that on that day we have Christ on our side. So repent. Turn from yourself, from your sins. Turn to Jesus and trust in him. Receive the gift of salvation by faith, and you'll be justified freely. You'll enter into a relationship with God and with God's people. And among God's people, we must emphasize what unites us. It's not our common backgrounds, politics, or nationality. It's the gospel that achieves the unity of Christians while the law divides. In Christ, Jews and Gentiles belong to the one body of Christ. And we as his members must resist the fear of man, pride, hypocrisy, traditions, favoritism, every danger that threatens our oneness. We must not exalt ourselves, one race over another, the rich over the poor, and not even more mature over the less mature. Next, there's another danger we detect in Galatians 2. That leads us to the second truth, second blessing of the gospel, union with Christ. The gospel leads us to separate from the law for union with Christ. Multiple times in his letters, Paul uses the catechism question and answer format. He uses it to refute false doctrines concerning law and sin. In Romans 6, 1, 6.15, 7.7, he asks, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Is the law sin? His reply every time, certainly not. Something similar is happening in Galatians 2, 17, and I'll read it again. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. In other words, if everyone, everywhere, every time are sinners, Jew or Gentile, doesn't that mean the message of Christ increases the total sum number of sinners in the world? Let's see if a modern illustration can help us. Some predict that this year there will be an estimated 1.9 million new cases of cancer in U.S. Let's say for some reason that number doubles to nearly 4 million. You try to understand why and gather some data. Let's say hypothetically that there's a corresponding rise in the number of excellent medical schools. There are better doctors everywhere along with better medical technology and better services. So now there's a correlation between better medicine and higher number of cancer diagnoses. 
What would you say to this? Would you say that it's the fault of the medicine, the physician, the science, that there's a higher number of patients? Of course not. Or as Paul would say, certainly not. In the same way, you can't blame Jesus for being a good doctor. He's not the minister of sin. Rather, he administers the cure for our sin. But before that, Jesus gets us to realize that we're sick. We must first swallow our pride if we are to swallow his medicine. We must admit we're sinners. Jesus uses the tool, uh, the law as a surgical tool to expose the cancer of sin in our lives. By the law is the knowledge of sin. And for the Jew, there's the diagnosis in the middle of verse 17. We ourselves also are found sinners. It's not just a Gentile problem. Our acceptance of our guilt is a necessary step if we're going to be justified by Christ. Knowing that we're sinners is the first step towards recovery. And next, that recovery from sin is explained in the rest of the chapter. Now, have you ever looked at instructions on a medicine box or a bottle? It tells us how to properly use it. It not only says, do this, but it also says, don't do this. Similarly, Paul's saying here, don't misunderstand the gospel and apply it the wrong way. For example, if you mix a pure medicine with some impure chemical, you'll contaminate it. Legalism, that is living for God's approval by following the law, is that foreign substance that will ruin the pure gospel message. Once Jesus administers the cure, once we're justified by faith in Christ, we don't need to seek justification by the works of the law. Paul elaborates and explains how faith in Christ operates in contrast to the works of the law. Consider verse 18 as a warning on the label with a big exclamation mark. It gives us a sad picture of justification by works of the law. We're now shifting metaphors. By pursuing legalism, you're only rebuilding what you've destroyed. It's a frustrating, endless cycle. Because the law is made weak through our flesh, there's no way out. It's like that myth of Sisyphus. You roll up the immense boulder of the law's burden, up the hill, down the hill, up again, down again. All the while, you cannot escape condemnation, your label as transgressor. Such is the struggle of legalism. Seeking God's approval by our efforts is self-defeating. Don't go back down that path. There's a better principle to live for God. Living by the law is not the way to live for God. Living under grace is better than living under the law. Take many doses of this truth daily, as frequently as possible. If verse 18 pictures living by the works of the law, verses 19 to 21 shows us living by faith in Christ. To help us understand verses 19 to 21, we need help from a cross-reference. I encourage you to read and study this when you get home. The cross-reference is, no surprise, 
from Romans and turn with me to Romans 7, 1 to 6. And this, or listen carefully, but I'll read it and you can follow along. Romans 7. One to six. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if her, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when, for when we were in the flesh, the simple passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. One is under one of two relationships, either with the law or with Christ. The rule of traditional marriage is that a marriage ends legally with death. Till death do us part, we vow. And in the gospel, there is a perfectly legal solution to our legal obligation to the law. It's the perfect penal substitution of Christ's work on the cross. If we come to Christ by faith, his death becomes our death. We become dead to the law through his body. The gospel leads us to separate from the law for union with Christ. Another illustration, let's say there's a great war hero. He is afforded great rewards for his sacrifice for his country. They include tax exemption, endless wealth, worldwide fame. Now a young lady comes along and marries the man she has never been rich. And in fact, she owes money to lenders. And she has a bad reputation. But now because of her marriage union with the hero, she loses that disgrace of her former life. She now enjoys all the privileges of her husband's sacrifice and work for the government. That's how Christ benefits us if we have union with him. Because of his union with Jesus, Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. Even though he wasn't up there bleeding with him on Calvary. Because of our union with Christ, the benefits of his loving sacrifice belong to us. Our sins, condemnation, misery, Jesus takes for himself and takes care of them as our groom. His life, death, resurrection, all his goodness and benefits are ours. And though we still dwell in our bodies here on earth, we enjoy an intimacy with God's Son through faith. 
That connection is so deep and so real that we can say with Paul, Christ lives in me. Living by faith in Jesus Christ is what allows us to live for God. It's better than living by the works of the law. Far better. The gospel leads us to separate from the law for union with Christ. That's how we live for God. One more time, I speak to those who do not know Jesus. Let me tell you, Christ is marriage material. As Martin Luther once wrote, faith in Christ is like a wedding ring, and through it, we unite with him in marriage. Say yes to Christ, the Son of God. He died for sinners like us, and our response should be gratitude. And to say that there's any other way to heaven is to cheapen God's grace. To say that there's some way of salvation through the works of the law, that would mean our Lord made a pointless sacrifice. It's faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone that saves. That is the way to live for God's glory alone. Do not set aside the grace of God by adding to it the works of the law. Instead, let's gratefully praise the God of grace. Trust his truth and might. My Lord has saved my life and freely pardoned gives. I love because he first loved me. I live because he lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are united here, not because we necessarily agree with everything we uh, hold to in our opinions, not because we all like each other the same, not because we all share a common background, but because of the faith that we have in you. We're all sinners, but because of our common faith in Jesus Christ, we come together under the law, we, would be, we could be separate. But Lord, we're here together. And Lord, we're thankful that we are united to each other and we, we are united with your Son. Thank you for that unbreakable bond that we have. And because of the unbreakable bond with your Son, we'll spend eternity together worshiping you, praising you, the God of grace. May we never set aside your grace, adding to it, cheapening it, thinking that we could be good on our own. Lord, we are still weak in our flesh, but we're thankful that you loved us, and you love us still. May we worship you, and we're thankful. May we sing to you. May we live for your glory. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.